Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. The $1 trillion bipartisan infrastructure bill took a major step forward after overwhelmingly passing the Senate, sending the measure to the House where Democrats are sharply divided over the size and details of the package. Meanwhile, the highly respected vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General John Hyten, said that the Pentagon is reconsidering its approach to warfighting and capabilities development in the wake of an October war game during which U.S. forces working to defend Taiwan were beaten by China. And speaking in Singapore on his first trip to the region since becoming America's Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin rejected as baseless Beijing's sweeping claims to the South China Sea, uh, among other messages that he delivered to the region and to China. The Senate has confirmed a large group of long-awaited political appointees to take top jobs uh, in the Pentagon, including uh, Frank Kendall as the Secretary of the United States Air Force. And we look back at the extraordinary legacy and career of Senator Carl Levin, a giant of American national security who served as the chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee who passed away Thursday at the age of 87. We offer our deepest condolences uh, to the Levin family. Joining us to discuss the week in Washington and beyond are Michael Baer, the former chairman of the Defense Business Board, uh, who leads the Dunbarton Strategies Consultancy and has played a key role in defense strategy and transitions uh, for decades. Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners, Dr. Patrick Cronin, who leads the Asia-Pacific program at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Michael Herson of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who among his many affiliations is uh, associated with the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. Fincantieri Marinette Marine sponsors our naval coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. General Motors Defense sponsors our technology coverage. L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of joint all-domain command and control. And Huntington Ingalls Industries is sponsoring our coverage of the Navy League's upcoming Sea Airspace Conference and Trade Show. And check out our weekly Cabas Ships podcast, with our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who take a deep dive into naval issues this week, taking a look at the Navy League's annual Sea Airspace Conference and Trade Show that starts next week. Check out our coverage throughout the week. It is sponsored by Huntington Ingalls uh, Industries. Michael Herson, uh, start us off as you always do. Congress uh, is going to be going on recess, so you're not going to be joining us for a couple of weeks. You're going to be on a well, well-earned vacation, although knowing you means you are still going to be working just sort of not 90 hours a week. You know, talk to us a little bit about the uh, $1 trillion infrastructure package, uh, what that means. You know, we have uh, House uh, Armed Services uh, Committee markups. Obviously, the Senate last week, as we discussed, boosted defense spending or moved to boost defense spending by $25 billion. Uh, and then, of course, we have the January 6th commission and, and, a, and a lot of other things playing in the background. Walk us through. OK, great. Yeah, there's a lot to unwrap this week. Uh, and I'll get try and get through it uh, quickly. So first, uh, our last podcast, we talked about uh, the bipartisan infrastructure package and the goal was to have a bill done by Monday. Uh, they missed that day by two days, but they did uh, unveil a bill on Wednesday. And as you pointed out, it passed um, the Senate, but it really it was a procedural motion that passed the Senate. So it's not ready to go to the House yet. But this is a first major step. And the procedural motion had 17 Republicans supporting it. And we know the magic number is 10. And among those 17 was Mitch McConnell supporting moving forward with the process on this bill, which is dedicated really to the hard infrastructure. We've talked about roads, bridges, tunnels, public transit, passenger freight rail, electric vehicles, airports, you know, things like that. Um, but final passage on this bill is, is far from certain uh, for a variety of reasons. Number one, senators are going to insist now on amendments to the bill. Uh, for example, Senator Cornyn came out and said, hey, you know, 20 senators uh, were involved in uh, this negotiation, but there's 80 other senators still, and they need to have input to this bill. So amendments uh, could end up tanking this bill in the Senate. Now, number two, uh, Nancy, Nancy Pelosi has said that uh, the House may want to amend the bill and have their own version of the bill. Now, I think that's highly unlikely. I think if, if it does get to the House, um, that they would have to swallow what the Senate sends them. But 
Pelosi has reiterated again that they're not going to pass this bipartisan bill unless they also uh, get the $3.5 trillion huge reconciliation uh, bill, uh, which is uh, the American Families Plan. And that hit another snag this week where uh, Kristen Sinema, who was a key architect of this bipartisan measure, came out and joined Joe Manchin saying that she would not support a $3.5 trillion reconciliation package. That number is just way too high. But she will support the beginning of the process. So I would expect the Senate next week to pass the uh, budget resolution, which she and Manchin will support. But right now, they would not support the actual um, spending bill uh, and tax bill uh, that would come next to the reconciliation package. Uh, so on that now will cause more friction between the progressives who initially wanted $6 trillion. Now the moderates are looking to get as low as, as $2 trillion. And we see fire now from both sides. Uh, for example, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez came out swinging yesterday, uh, attacking the bipartisan compromise, uh, actually saying that it excluded uh, members of color uh, from the negotiation, which is really nonsense. Anybody who wanted to be part of the negotiation could have been a negotiation. Uh, and then Trump now, uh, former President Trump is coming out trying to sabotage the Biden infrastructure deal because he couldn't get infrastructure done when he was president. So he does not want to see Biden getting infrastructure done. Uh, he's calling all the Republicans who are supporting this measure rhinos. He's uh, saying McConnell's a weak leader. He's surrendering to the Democrats and he's threatening these lawmakers who will who could support infrastructure and saying that the Republican voters will never forget their names, uh, nor will the people of our country. So this really could not only imperil the bill in the Senate, uh, but also imperil the bill in the House. There's a lot of things working against infrastructure, and there's still a very long way to go. And talk to us about the security uh, supplemental, as well as uh, what the House authorizers uh, have done right, uh, as well as what's going on on uh, the appropriation side of the House. Sure. Uh, so and there's some good news to unwrap uh, and here. You know, we talked uh, on a previous podcast about how the National Guard was saying that they were going to have to start canceling training uh, because they need to get reimbursed for their activities uh, on January 6th. And earlier this week, the National Guard actually announced that they were starting to cancel some training activities. So the House and Senate worked very quickly and passed a $2.1 trillion, um, $2.1 billion um, uh, a bill that would uh, to make up for these security funds. So the National Guard is getting $521 million. But on top of that, there's actually $1.1 billion, $500 billion extra for the Pentagon, $600 billion for the State Department to relocate Afghans who helped the U.S. government. Uh, it passed the Senate and the House yesterday and is headed to the president for signature. So that is a piece of good news. Another piece of good news is that the House Armed Services Committee, uh, over two days this week, Wednesday and Thursday, marked up all their bills in subcommittee, and every bill... Uh, every subcommittee passed of a voice vote on a bipartisan basis. So these were not contentious. Uh, <clears throat> we're waiting to see what happens on September 1st when they go to full committee. It is expected that an amendment will be offered by the Republicans to increase defense spending by $25 billion to match uh, what uh, the Senate has done. Uh, I would expect that amendment to pass. I think there are plenty of Democrats that will vote for it, uh, but that still you know, remains to be seen. Now, on appropriations, we have 12 appropriations bills. We talked last week about a minibus being voted on, uh, including seven bills, which was passed this week. But in addition, Democrats did try and bring to the floor, and they did bring individually the state and uh, foreign ops appropriations bill uh, and the legislative branch appropriations bill. And those were passed pretty much on a strict party line vote. A couple of Democrats uh, fell off of those bills, but they were able to get those passed. They were not able to get a vote on the Commerce Justice State Bill, which has oversight of NASA. We're hoping to get that done. But you know that bill is cobbled together with police reform, and there are some things the Democrats put in from the George Floyd Policing Act that never became law that there are a lot of people have objections to, and they just don't have the votes. But that still leaves the Homeland Security Bill and the Defense Bill hanging out probably till September, maybe October, uh, to get to passage. And a lot will depend, too, on what the final numbers are going to be and if there's some kind of budget deal, including the debt ceiling, uh, uh, incorporated into that as well. But I think that on that front, we are making some positive progress. And on um, January uh, 6th, uh, which is sort of linked also to masks, uh, we had the House Speaker calling the uh, minority uh, leader uh, a moron or moronic, depending on uh, how you interpreted her, her uh, statements, uh, things getting uh, obviously acrimonious, but a very sort of moving uh, start to the hearings. Uh, very briefly, give us your sense on how this affects the political dynamic, or is this just optics at this point? Um, I think it's just, uh, uh, unfortunately, a lot of it is optics, that uh, each 
side seems to be doubling down and going back to their corners. Uh, I, obviously, the, the testimony was very emotional, but you know we're still we're only seven months into the new Congress, so we're light years away from the next election. This will be an issue, but I think it's going to be overcome by other issues. Uh, we did see another Republican now appointed by Pelosi to the committee, Adam Kinzinger, who, as we know, is a national security expert on the Foreign Affairs Committee. I think that was a very brave move, again, on, on his part. Uh, and, and the scope of the uh, committee is still being worked out as well, uh, even though they've already started uh, with the hearing process. And we, we have a lot of national security experts you know, on the Democratic side, too, on this committee. So, uh, you know, I think there's still a lot of fear out there as to making people a fall guy, who's going to be subpoenaed, who's going to testify. There's still a lot of unknowns. And I think there's going to be a lot of theater uh, surrounding this. But I think for the most part, a lot of people have their minds made up on the outcome. Um, Michael Bear has a uh, very Michael. Thank you very much. Michael Bear has a very small window with us, and you've been uh, very patient. First, uh, Michael, uh, you joined us for a whole series of transition programs. So you and Arnold Panaro, who prepared so many, uh, including working with uh, the likes of Dov uh, Zakheim uh, through confirmation processes over the decades. We had a whole group of folks go through. Now, uh, sadly, two hundred days into into the new administration, what does that milestone mean, and what does the administration next have to do? because there are still a lot of jobs that have to get filled. Well, thank you, Bago. As you said, you know, it's 200 days since taking office, but they are finally beginning to get their Pentagon leadership team in place. You know, as a reminder, there are 61 of these Senate-confirmed presidential appointees, and until recently, only five of them were in office, with 16 more locked up in the confirmation queue, leaving 40 of them yet to be identified. But we've now got, as you said, Frank Kendall. So we've got two of the three service secretaries in place, the general counsel's in place, and Heidi Shu is the undersecretary for research and engineering. So on the A-list jobs of the 61, where they're making some progress, we're also getting a real sense of this new team. The 21 we've seen so far are all largely known commodities. They are mostly centrist Democrats. Most of them have prior service in the department. They, in contrast to the Trump team, they are civilians, not former flag officers, and all of them are technically competent. And there is, however, a real void in the senior acquisition jobs. And with Mike Brown withdrawn from acquisition sustainment, his replacement is at best two months or more away. But to your point, for those confirmed, the hard work really now begins. And unique to this administration, this political team is gonna fall in on offices that already have the staffs in place and they've been in place for some time. So their political special assistants, their chiefs of staff, they're all pre-selected and months ahead of the incoming Senate confirms. Even their assistant secretaries and deputy assistant secretaries are for the most case pre-ordained. So getting that team aligned and oriented to the new agenda will be challenging. And then one other point I think that is not lost on me, it's been interesting to hear the service secretaries and their confirmations declare their jobs will be advocating for their services, which is, I note, unless somebody's changed Title 10, is not one of their responsibilities. As I've often said, in fact, they're the president's person to run that service. They're not that service's person to protect that service from the SecDef and the White House. So lots to do, little time, but a, an interesting team. Over. Michael, I want to give you another uh, bite at this because, again, your time is short and you've got to uh, leave us. Um, there are a number of us on this call who have been agitating for a strategic change for some time, that what it is that we're doing is not at all matched to the kind of challenges uh, that we face. And John Hyten uh, and Michael, you were at the uh, Emerging Technologies Institute uh, event. Uh, the rollout of national, uh, the National Defense Industrial Association's technology uh, practice uh, led by Dr. Uh, Mark Lewis, our mutual friend. And at this event, John Hyten said there was a major war game in October, United States coming to the defense of Taiwan, and it went really badly. And he said, in the wake of this, we have to question our war fighting assumptions or capabilities, how we prepare, how we think, and that this is a wake-up call. This is the kind of failure that's important to have. As I've characterized it, uh, you know, this is this is the the alcoholic admitting they have a problem, but we have a long way to go for recovery. And I should note, even though John Hyten is the most competent and capable officer uh, of his generation, arguably, he is retiring in a couple of months. Uh, it looks like Chaz Richard uh, is the leading contender to replace him as vice chairman. Uh, Admiral Richard obviously is uh, the commander of U.S. Strategic Command and an able leader as well. 
we've seen some false starts on this, Michael. How did you interpret John uh, Hyten's statement? Does this mark the start of necessary change or uh, is this uh, another false start? You know, sort of like, hey, tell people something like this, get them off the scent, but, you know, the feather bed will change back into its original position once pressure is relieved. You're right. I mean, I was at the NDIA rollout uh, when General Hyten gave those words. And, and it's important to say that he finally gave word to that which no one heretofore has wanted to say, that America is not what we proclaim to be, that in fact, we're not really ready to win. It, it, it wasn't also new because that war game he cited it happened some time ago. But almost immediately after it concluded, it's been the subject of conflict countless conversations among you, me, and other people on this group. But the important part is that, would, that it was John Hyten that said it, and people who ignore Hyten often ignore him at their peril. And that's what I think made this an important event. But the key question is, does it matter? Now, many of you, let me, let me just take a little bit of an aside, because many of you will remember that in October of 2012, at the Benz Eisenhower Award Address, the Secretary of Defense, Leon Panetta, startled the audience with the declaration, we are in a cyber war and America is not ready. That story ran on page one of most of the newspapers in the nation. But three and a half months later, Panetta left the Pentagon and nothing much happened. Three years ago, I was uh, running my DOD cyber readiness review and we declared we're in an undeclared counter-value, counter-force cyber war with the Chinese, and we're losing. Still nothing happened. So like cyber vulnerabilities, Hyten's concern is not new. Half a dozen years ago, Bob Work wrote in a directive to the department in which he said, I'm concerned that the department's ability to test operational concepts, capabilities, and plans, that is wargaming, has atrophied. He, in, in that directive, he said that we once had it right in the Cold War. Then the competitive military balance was continuously assessed and tested from rifle companies to naval battle groups. It was in the DNA of our national security enterprise and its people. I was in the Reagan administration in those days and the whole of government got it also. At the Department of Commerce, Commerce, we were modeling our competitors' economies and their national discretionary capabilities. So it's not clear to me that heightened speech is in fact a hinge of history. So over. Um, Michael, thanks. Uh, thanks. Thanks very much for that. And I know you've got to leave us. So uh, if you if you slide off, uh, we uh, completely understand. Thanks very much for yeah. that insight. You're Dove, welcome. Uh, take care. Uh, Dove, um, let me let me let me uh, take this to you and uh, sort of see where you want to take this both uh, on the budgetary angle of this, but also on the strategic uh, thinking part of it and John uh, Hyten's comments. Well, uh, Michael's right. This isn't a new story. Uh, frankly, it isn't a new story with somebody, you know, crying out in the wilderness that we've got something wrong and remaining in the wilderness. Uh, the problem is that we are not budgeting as seriously as we should, uh, given the kinds of concerns that Hyten and going back to Panetta raised. And I say that because if you look at where you really need to break ahead of the Chinese, it's not just the AI we're doing now. It's not just the hypersonics that we're already behind them and the Russians on. It's the applied research, the, the, what's called 6-2, which you apply particularly to military things and not to civilian things. And if you look at that portion of the budget, it actually declined. So, you know, we're not really putting our money where our mouth is. That's number one. Number two is that uh, it's not at all clear that the acquisition bureaucracy uh, really understands the problem. And without them understanding the problem, I don't know how you defeat it. Uh, Arnold Panaro, our good friend, uh, gave a speech the other day at the American Enterprise Institute about his new book. And he basically said this. He said the acquisition bureaucracy is just where it's been for the last God knows how many years. We've got to fix much more than just the budgets. We've got to fix the way we think, and we have to fix the way we go about doing our business. 
Um, do you uh, think that the, I mean, the infrastructure measure was supposed to have more technology in it, at least the uh, Democratic version of it. Some of those technology investments aren't in. The Democratic argument for this is we do need a net, right, that this isn't merely a defense issue. We need to be doing broader technology investment. That having been said, I know Michael Herson is about to correct me. There was another uh, $250 billion measure that we passed a little while ago that did include some of those national technological investments. But what do you think the approach needs to be uh, in, in, in this case? Well, the, the point about the technological investment is that you invest in, in commercial technology and, and the commercial world just looks at things differently. Uh, and you hope that some of it will spin off to the defense world. Uh, in the past, of course, it was exactly the opposite. You you did things that you needed for defense and it spun off into the commercial world. So even though we could put a ton of money and we should put a ton of money into what we're doing in, in our commercial world, that doesn't necessarily mean it will fully apply to what we need on the defense side. And we just have to find these breakthrough technologies that'll pull us ahead of the Chinese again. Otherwise, we're going to find that the war game that Hyten was referring to is just going to be repeated over and over. Uh, th that's true. Although I have to also give a little bit of credit to uh, the Obama administration as well. That was the administration that started to say, hey, we don't have as good a beat on this. And we think there are serious problems and these competitors are really getting good and did do a lot of foundational work to try to get us there, whether for uh, the Defense Innovation Initiative or some of the things Ash was doing or Bob Work or Frank. No, Campbell, no, was look, no question that they identified the problem. But the Obama administration hasn't been around for about five years now. And look at what the Chinese have done over the last five years. And look at what the Russians have done over the last five years. So, yes, they pointed out the problem, uh, as as Michael Baer said, uh, Mr. Panetta pointed out the problem. Leon, you know, was, after all, the Secretary of Defense under Obama. The issue is, what do we do about it? And that's what bothers me. We just, we move so slowly. Uh, we are totally uh, risk averse. Uh, and you cannot beat the Chinese that way. Uh, fully agreed. Uh, Byron, let me go to you uh, for a historical perspective on this. And also you've been covering, uh, you know, whether or not you want to comment a little bit on uh, where we are on markups as well, because you've been following that really closely as well. Take it in any direction you want to go to. And uh, Patrick, you're, you're next up because it's a big uh, China week and we want to hear from you as well. Go ahead, Byron. Let me just focus on the, the heightened comments. I wasn't at the event, so I'm really relying on what was reported in, in the media on it. But a couple of thoughts. I, I want to amplify a lot of what David just mentioned. I think a real key, you know, you got to put your money where your mouth is. And I think exhibit A ought to be a very close examination of what's in the $25 billion that SAS wants to add. You know, is that really pushing this ball forward or is it just entrenching uh, existing systems that may not be relevant to these future conflicts uh, scenarios? Um, and that same things, <clears throat> that same filter has to be passed through the FY23 budget, which as Michael uh, Bear pointed out, you know, at least you're now getting some of the senior leadership in place to help steer that through <clears throat> the Pentagon as, uh, as it's built up for public release in early 2022. Um, the second point, you know, I want to make on war games, you know, I think it's healthy that you have defeats. Uh, their purpose is not to always validate and show you're always going to be victorious. Um, anybody who's been at the National Training Center knows how humbling those experiences can be um, for, for the visiting team that goes up against the, uh, <clears throat> the op four units at that facility. Um, I came across a quote that General Marshall made in 1941 about the Louisiana maneuvers. And he said, I want mistakes made down in Louisiana, not over in Europe. And the only way to do things is to try it out. And if it doesn't work, find out what we need to do and make it work. So uh, I, you always have to ask, how is the war game structured? You know, it, did it really stress? Um, and again, failure in some of these things should be good, uh, particularly if we learn from it. Um, Final two points I want to make. I think General Hyten was reported to say, you know, we're kind of get there by 2030. I mean, that approach is glacial in, in the type of environment that Dove just mentioned. You know, even what's happened over the past couple of years. I mean, our adversaries are not moving at that pace. We've got to step on the gas. 
Final point, I would uh, refer people to uh, uh, an event that Heritage held with Mark Lewis on hypersonic weapon programs. And he talked about a lot of these issues that were just discussed, the skittish over failure in, in uh, weapons test programs, the ability uh, or, or really the necessity of the US to scale in hypersonic weapons programs. Um, Lewis stated that in every war game he participated on, if the US did not have hypersonic weapons in scale, they lost. So um, back to kind of putting your money where your mouth is, taking risk, um, pushing this thing forward and making the hard choices that a lot of people don't seem capable of making these days. Uh, there's a lot to be done here. Over. Um, uh, I, I couldn't agree more, although it's surprising that it took until the October war game, right? I mean, obviously, we don't know anything about it. Members of Congress haven't yet been briefed on it, or at least I've, I've spoken and heard from other members of Congress who haven't heard from uh, heard about this. Michael, uh, you may have more to, to add to that. Uh, certainly, members are eager to hear more about this. But ultimately, you know, I, I don't know if you necessarily needed a really tough war game to tell you that, right? All you had to do is review the capabilities of our systems and the capabilities of what it is they're developing, and you would actually arrive at some ugly uh, and uncomfortable truths, uh, right? I mean, it's all about outsticking your adversary, and we know for a fact the other the other guy is developing a lot of very long sticks. Um, uh, speaking of long sticks, uh, uh, Patrick, you've been very, very uh, patient. Uh, thanks very much. Uh, big Asia Week. Uh, Lloyd Austin making his, his first addresses. Uh, I want to give you an opportunity to uh, either address uh, and maybe start off addressing the heightened comments and how you perceive them, uh, because you play in these war games at a first order and are familiar not just with the diplomacy and the strategy of things, but also the, the hard capabilities. Uh, and then how Lloyd Austin's message played into this. You know, what I thought was fascinating about what Hyten said is he specifically said the United States was going to war to defend Taiwan. That I thought was a great strategic uh, message. The other thing I think which was positive uh, was, and as Admiral Mike Rogers uh, on our cyber report this week said, right to, to the criticism that Hyten made a mistake by talking about U.S. inabilities, the, you know, Mike's point was the Chinese know exactly what their advantages are. So, you know, John Hyden didn't tell them anything the Chinese didn't know. The good thing was telling them we have a lot of capability and we're going to get our act together. From your standpoint, you know, take us in any direction you want to take us in, in terms of, of, of not just the Hyden uh, issue, the deterrence message, but also what we heard from Lloyd Austin and whether or not that plays into the broader uh, message that we need to deliver to the Chinese. Well, thank you, Vago. S certainly the vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff uh, as a position uh, has a key role to play in pushing reform. Um, and I think uh, General Hyten's trying to do that here, maybe in his final months uh, on the job by stressing uh, the scenario on Taiwan and by talking about America's willingness to, to defend Taiwan, even if we don't think we have the capabilities we need in the future to do that well, um, he has indeed sent the signal to Beijing that America's political will is unstinting, that the United States is serious about uh, protecting democracies. And by the way, former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, not your normal lawmaker, in Tokyo this week with a Taiwan-US-Japan trilateral uh, parliamentary uh, meeting, said we must not allow what happened in Hong Kong to happen in Taiwan. Um, again, another significant move at the same time that the Japan's uh, annual defense white paper for the first time called out the significance of the defense of Japan uh, of Taiwan for Japan. All of this is being synchronized. And so let's go to Singapore. Let's go to uh, Manila and Hanoi. These are the three capitals where Secretary of Defense uh, Lloyd Austin has visited in person uh, this week. And he started in Singapore giving uh, the Fullerton address at the IISS in Singapore a couple of months after the Shangri-La Dialogue was, was canceled this year because of COVID. Uh, and he reinforced his idea of integrated defense or integrated deterrence rather, uh, something that he, he featured in remarks uh, at the change of command uh, three months ago at, in the Pacific Command. 
Um, he, he, the military doesn't exist in splendid isolation, but as an instrument to advance foreign policy and to employ all instruments of power. He called for a kind of new regional order of allies and partners to stand up against gray zone coercion. Uh, and this on uh, calling for freedom of the seas on the fifth anniversary of the international legal tribunal ruling that largely rejected China's excessive claims in the South China Sea. Um, but all of this is uh, good rhetoric uh, and, and very good for signaling the direction which the United States wants to go with the region. It was pointed, but not too provocative. It was important in its own right, but it's part of a, a regional uh, policy, if not uh, clearly integrated strategy. I think what General Hyten, go back to General Hyten's concern um, and, and the remarks that have been made earlier by Dove and others on this program, um, the actual uh, alacrity with which we can move in this direction of integrating deterrence is different from our ability to talk about it. So um, the Chinese, of course, smeared and slammed the United States for interference with Chinese sovereignty, uh, accused it of supporting violent extremism, uh, interfering on things like Taiwan, um, and it was very angry. At the same time, there was diplomacy in China this past week with the Deputy Secretary of State, uh, Wendy Sherman. But from that meeting, her counterpart, Foreign Minister Wang Yi, went and met with the Taliban and praised the Taliban and said, America's failed the Afghans and China wants to support them uh, and bring them into the fold, provided it was essentially said, uh, they don't stir up troubles in Xinjiang and for China. Uh, good luck with that, China. Um, but at the same time, our defense angle, our diplomacy and our development seems to be going, they seem to be going in the right direction. And not only did uh, Deputy Secretary Sherman visit Indonesia, Thailand, as well as Cambodia a couple of months ago. Uh, we now have word that the Vice President of the United States, Kamala Harris, will actually go to Singapore uh, in Vietnam in the coming weeks. That'll be very important because it presages uh, further announcements out of the White House and ultimately, hopefully, a presidential visit to the region later this year to reinforce our engagement, especially with Southeast Asia, which has huge ramifications for Taiwan scenarios uh, as, we, as we continue to cooperate with the quad countries of Japan, India, and Australia, for instance, and bringing the, the sort of larger maritime democracies uh, on both sides of, of Southeast Asia. Um, I think the uh, problem with defense, though, is indeed that, as Bing West writes in the August issue of Marine Corps Gazette, um, we are indeed risk averse, and we need to take these paper concepts like the Marine Corps uh, Force 2030, Marine Force Design 2030, and show that it is actually operational uh, by conducting an exercise in the South China Sea. Otherwise, it's not gonna be seen as really uh, a, a effective at, at, uh, in, and listened to by the Chinese. Uh, and that's sort of the same thing that Bradley Bowman and Mark Montgomery write about in War on the Rocks this week about the need to fully fund the, the Guam defense system. If we don't actually show that we're going to defend our capabilities in the region and have positions from which to operate, then the Chinese are not going to be listening uh, to the words of the Secretary of Defense in Singapore. They're gonna be listening maybe to General Hyten's words that maybe the United States really isn't ready to defend Taiwan, even if they want to. So building up our capabilities and credibility uh, are gonna be watched very closely by the Chinese, even while the words of the Secretary of Defense are extremely important in signaling our desire, our policy and our strategic direction, which I think is the right direction to head uh, in the months ahead. I should note for our uh, audience uh, that Dove, uh, in his column uh, uh, for, uh, for The Hill, uh, has uh, written uh, about China uh, and its role uh, in Afghanistan, uh, effectively saying, you know, and I think the title of the piece says it all, China moves quickly to replace America in Afghanistan, which is uh, yet another reason why I think that the withdrawal, uh, the precipitous withdrawal we've made was as bad when um, Donald Trump was saying it is actually worse uh, when uh, Joe Biden does it, especially in the way that we're doing it and the roughness with which we're, we're treating our Afghan uh, allies. I want to ask one clarification, though, before I go to Dove to comment on this uh, and then uh, open uh, the conversation to a couple of other questions. Uh, not to overdo an Olympic analogy, but it is the 2020 Olympics in Tokyo in 2021. Um, Lloyd Austin did not stick the landing in this speech, uh, did he? Because he did deliver a few messages that folks thought were a little bit off, not to be excessively critical. But I know that in you know any outing like this, right, every little nuance and detail, whether you're trying to get a gold medal in the Olympics or in this, matters. 
what were the 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 missteps here from from your standpoint? Because there was a there was a message about our British allies, and then a little bit of a flap over Vietnam. Walk us through both of those. Well, in the Q and A on the Fullerton Address in Singapore, uh, when asked about British naval presence in the Asia Pacific, the Secretary of Defense implied that those forces would be better deployed in the European theater um, and that they weren't really adding value. That runs counter to everything I think officials and experts have been talking to the Europeans about in the past couple of years to try to get into the Indo-Pacific and, and kind of contribute even in small ways, but significant politically and symbolically uh, to show unity that the democracies are unified about uh, a rules-based order. So his words on that actually undermine the message that was in his excellent speech on supporting a new order, a rules-based order uh, together with like-minded allies and partners. Um, but it was a small thing relative to the larger importance of just showing up and being present. Now in Vietnam, there were talks, uh, references to an enhanced defense cooperation agreement that actually is what we have with the Philippines. Um, the Secretary of Defense didn't say that, his, his press secretary did, um, but it confused some in the region. I think though, again, the important thing was being in Vietnam, being in the Philippines, even during the, the waning, you know, the last year of the Duterte administration, which has been problematic for the US. And by the way, Vago, the most important achievement of the Secretary of Defense's trip to Southeast Asia was the culmination of restoration of the Visiting Forces Agreement by President Duterte of the Philippines. This was unexpected. Uh, Duterte's used this as leverage against the United States. He's been playing with this for the last 18 months or more. And this is a significant achievement for the Alliance and for Secretary Austin. And so now you can have the newly uh, confirmed Assistant Secretary uh, of Defense for the Indo-Pacific, Eli Ratner, you know, help work with other parts of uh, the government and the Defense Department um, to try to work uh, with Vietnam in the coming months, with Philippines, uh, with Singapore, and with others in the region. And I think uh, it's still moving in the right direction, despite these small uh, hiccups. Dove, uh, broadly on uh, the message that Austin delivered, but also your piece about Afghanistan and, and why China will not play a constructive role or, or will not play the constructive role the international community hopes and expects of a leading power. Well, um, Patrick already referred to it. Uh, look, you know, on the ground or on the sea, as it were, because that's more of what we're talking about in uh, Southeast Asia, uh, we still haven't done very much more, as Patrick pointed out. On the other hand, the Chinese are playing a very clever game. I mean, they've met uh, the Wang Yi, the foreign minister, not only met with uh, nine Taliban representatives in, in China, at China's invitation, by the way, uh, this week. He also met for a second time in, in the last few weeks with the Pakistani foreign minister. Uh, and it's pretty clear that they're coordinating what to do and how to deal with the, the Taliban on the assumption that the Taliban's going to take over. Uh, as everybody knows, Pakistan makes it very clear they see China as their so-called all-weather friend. Uh, so those two countries, uh, I suspect, are working in tandem, and the Pakistanis have never been particularly supportive of what we've been trying to do in Afghanistan and were the hosts for the Taliban pretty much since the Taliban escaped uh, from Afghanistan. Uh, on the other hand, the Chinese are still talking to the uh, Kabul government and probably will do until uh, Kabul falls, as I and many others predict it will. Um, and so it, it troubled me in a way that uh, when the Secretary of Defense listed all the things Chinese, uh, China's been doing vis-a-vis -vis India, vis-a-vis uh, the, uh, uh, -vis the Uyghurs, and, and of course in the South China Sea, he, he didn't say anything about Afghanistan at all. Uh, because that's not a subject the administration particularly wants to touch. And I think that was a mistake because the Chinese just look at what our bark is and what our bite is, and, and the bite just doesn't match the bark right now. I would also say this. I, I think uh, that the impact uh, of, his, of the comments about Britain uh, were far more serious than perhaps Patrick thinks. Uh, the British are exceedingly upset about this. Uh, and... Uh, you know, they are, they have actually been looking at tightening up their relationships. They're part of a thing called the Five Power Defense Agreement, uh, which includes Australia and Singapore and Malaysia. They want to get, be more active in that and have that be a more active uh, 
uh, organization or, or uh, not really organization, but uh, sort of a cooperative uh, vehicle. They're also talking about actually trying to join the Quad or have some stronger relationship with the Quad. So the Brits are taking this very, very seriously. And then all of a sudden, out of the blue, the Secretary of Defense sort of dismisses it. Uh, it hasn't sat well at all. Um, and I should uh, point out for our audience, uh, because I can't imagine anybody doesn't know this, uh, Britain has built two big deck aircraft carriers, investing in a Navy, making clear that it's a global power. A couple of years ago, I remember when Lung Aquilino was in uh, Navy uh, strategy, he's now uh, the uh, Indo-Pacific commander, uh, you know, signed the tripartite agreement among the United States, Britain and Japan. Uh, which was tailored for the Pacific. And obviously now the Queen Elizabeth uh, battle group, uh, Britain's, uh, the flagship of the Royal Navy is in the Pacific. And this was right after Ben Wallace and the Johnson administration said, we're going to cut two ships to be permanently forward deployed in the Pacific, all of which should be welcomed uh, by the United States with open arms. I think that, uh, you know, folks uh, who uh, uh, want to sort of, um, um, sort of clarify what Austin meant was, hey, we need Europeans to do more uh, to deter Russia, and we will be on that uh, leading edge uh, in the Pacific. But I, I don't think that's sensible. We have to be able to, you know, sort of wash, you know, do dishes as well, right? Uh, and well, uh, walk and chew gum. One of the and, points- and, and by the way, I was just also going to add, our French allies are equally critical, if not more so, because of French Polynesia and the vast amount of uh, territory and presence that the French tend to have uh, in the Pacific. Go, go, go ahead, Dove, yeah, and then I want to move to Byron. The British and the Japanese have uh, increased their cooperation to the point where it's not an alliance yet like it was in the early 20th century, uh, but it clearly has gone much, much further than anything Britain has done with Japan since the Second World War. Uh, they the Brits uh, really want to be a not want to be. They feel they are a player in East Asia. They have a historic legacy there, uh, and uh, I frankly I think the relationship with the Japanese, given the Japanese statements about Taiwan, uh, did not go unnoticed in Beijing. Yeah, and um, um, Doug, if I could just go, add to go that ahead, one, one thought is that in the wake of the national security law and the draconian crackdown in Hong Kong. Uh, the British have felt that acutely, and they are partly reacting to that um, violation, essentially, of the agreement that they thought they had with the Chinese government. And they're saying, China, you know, we, we're not going to stand idle as well. So their, their presence and their stepped up presence economically, militarily, diplomatically in the region is serious and going to be long term. So we need to be uh, supporting it in every way we can, as Dove has suggested. Byron, um, I want to get your uh, sense on all of this as well, because you're a keen student of history, um, have been doing a lot of reading in the Royal Navy uh, as, as well recently. I mean, what's, what's your view of all this? Well, it's always about history, right, to a degree. I mean, I, I think clearly the U.S. should welcome a Royal Navy presence in, in Asia Pacific and the Indo-Pacific. Uh, you know, it didn't go so well for the Royal Navy in 1941-1942 uh, when they frankly could have had much greater losses in that part of the world uh, when they first encountered the Imperial Japanese Navy. Um, and, you know, this also, we, we talked about the Royal Navy, I suppose it also plays back into some of the experiences that Japan had in that, and Japan, in, in, that Australia had in that time period where, uh, you know, the sinking of the Repulse and the Prince of Wales in 1941, the Japanese foray into the Bay of Bengal, the attacks on, on Ceylon, um, the, uh, the sinking of two British cruisers, an aircraft carrier, um, you know, Australia felt pretty naked from that. And again, I, I'm, I haven't talked to people recently, but I think this, Europe clearly has a role and interest in, in Indo-Pacific, as Patrick has pointed out in these past broadcasts. And the kind of brush them aside or say, you know, you, you guys focus on your part of the world. I think it's a mistake. And again, um, historic memory always plays a, a role in, in how these things also were perceived and conceived. Michael, very quickly, how are members of Congress responding? I'm sorry to wait so long to get to you, but how are members of Congress responding to the heightened comments at this point? 
So interesting. I spent a lot of time with a lot of uh, members of Congress this week, and it didn't come up in conversation at all, but it has come up uh, at the staff level. I was up on the Hill um, almost every day this week, and I was having lunch with a senior staffer. And the minute we sat down, he showed me his iPhone with email traffic uh, dealing with the, with the heightened comments uh, from personal office and committee staff. So there's definitely concern, obviously. But again, as folks mentioned earlier in the podcast, it's really nothing new. Uh, and right. the, nobody's talking about any specific action that's going to be taken. And it's also kind of like, well, we knew this already. And, you know, there's also, you know, behind the scenes chatter too about Taiwan. I mean, if the Chinese really were to go after Taiwan, what will we be able to do to really stop it? So, I mean, there's still a lot of concern, a lot of talk, but I'm really interested to see what kind of action and what we really do to, to turn the ship around. Um, we've only got a very, very, a very small window left, just a couple of minutes. We want to remember Carl Levin uh, and his legacy. Uh, Michael, uh, you spent a lot of time, uh, worked with uh, Senator uh, Levin and his staff. Uh, Dove, you had to go through confirmation. Patrick, you worked with Senator Levin as well. Byron, you covered uh, Senator uh, Levin uh, and, and sat through uh, I- events as well. Michael, why don't you take this away? Uh, actually, I, I, I did work a lot with Senator Levin's staff, but I never really had the pleasure of working directly or meeting the senator. Uh, but he uh, obviously had a great reputation uh, among my clients and among industry downtown and my colleagues that, that I work with. Uh, it's very serious, very studious. And also, uh, you know, there was a lot of fear. Uh, if you were going being called to testify before his committee, uh, you better be prepared. And he was known for being well prepared and probing questions, especially when it came to investigations dealing with uh, defense companies or companies that do business with the defense industry. So um, and he also worked very closely with his Republican counterparts. And it's a day that a lot of us long for. And I think defense as a result of his work and uh, people like John Warner and other colleagues of his, that defense really still remains the last bastion of bipartisanship. Certainly was uh, no nonsense, fearsome, uh, hated uh, sound bites, uh, and and was uh, in- incredibly uh, bipartisan, gaining accolades, obviously, from uh, his ranking member and then his chairman, John Kane Dove. Uh, you had to go before uh, the formidable, bespectacled uh, Senator uh, Levin. Any stories from you? And then Patrick would love to get your sense. Oh, well. oh yeah. I have a story. All right. Um, <laughs> look, uh, Carl Levin never stopped being the prosecutor. And uh, the fact that, uh, as Mike Herson just said, uh, he, he scared people because he knew his stuff cold and he didn't uh, hold back. But when I went up to him for my courtesy call, uh, when I was up for undersecretary, you know, I'd had a whole bunch with with many others, uh, and most of them were friendly enough. Uh, and I tried to make some small talk with Levin. <laughs> Boy, did that fall flat. He was not <laughs> interested in a second's worth of small talk. Instead, he started asking me about publications that I had written years before. He was one tough guy. On the other hand, he was fair. He was, as I said, knowledgeable. Uh, And uh, you always knew you were getting a straight deal with him, which was really important and and why I think uh, whoever was ranking with him uh, at the time, you you know, mostly John McCain, uh, felt comfortable because you knew that there was no messing about with this man and and he will be sorely missed. He's already sorely missed uh, and has been for years in the Senate. Uh, Patrick, what was it like working with Senator Levin? Well, I would affirm exactly what Dove has just said. Um, When I was in uh, Senator Levin's office with a very small group from the National Defense University when I was directing the Institute for National Strategic Studies, I mean, here was a supporter of professional military education, but he didn't care about uh, partisanship. He didn't care about um, small things. He really was interested in big ideas. Um, And he wasn't afraid to say bold things out, out loud. I mean, in terms of talking about America should have a foreign legion, uh, and this would be a way to shift uh, sort of the burden onto others. Um, you know, it, it may have been a crazy idea, but <laughs> he was willing to discuss uh, strategy and uh, just have enormous uh, respect. We've lost, uh, you know, one of the great bipartisan defense leaders, and uh, hopefully he'll be an inspiration to a new generation uh, in the future. Byron? Uh, you covered many a hearing, uh, listened to many, read many a transcript. Uh, you know, what, what were some of the things that uh, you remember about Senator Levin? Well, just I think what's been already voiced here, uh, you know, the, the nature of his questioning, um, his expertise and knowledge, acquisition, 
reform issues. I mean, he didn't suffer fools in uh, in hearings, and um, you know, I, th I think there was a pretty potent combination uh, between him and and Senator McCain as well. So someday I hope to see that repeated. Uh, that that's an excellent wish. Although I have to say that I think Jack Reed and, and Jim Inhofe uh, deserve credit for at least trying to do uh, some of that, uh, as we saw recently, even though that might that was more sort of rewarding the department as opposed to giving the kind of tough love oversight uh, that I think both Levin and McCain uh, were known for, uh, known for without any disrespect to uh, to either Jack Reed or, or to Jim Inhofe. Tough uh, love is a good way to phrase it. Tough, tough love. Uh, exactly. Um, and, and very briefly, um, Dove, uh, you get the last word. You had a point to make on Taiwan. We've got about a minute left. Talk to us about Taiwan and your trip to Morocco, which I did not ask you about. And, and whatever Morocco was talking about obviously had to do with Tunisia, because last I checked, uh, that's kind of in the neighborhood. Well, Morocco's biggest concern, of course, is whether the administration will uh, stick to the agreement that Trump made to essentially recognize the Western Sahara as part of Morocco. Uh, there's been no news on that, and the Moroccans kind of feel no news is good news, but they're nervous that it might not come out the way they want. Uh, but that's probably the most important thing on their mind. Um, on Taiwan, uh, I was having lunch with a retired four-star, a very, very uh, thoughtful four-star who pointed out one thing that we should not forget uh, when we all panic over war games. And that is the Chinese have not fought a war since 1979 and the Vietnamese gave them a bloody nose at that point. On the other hand, most of our troops have fought in at least one war and probably in two and probably in multiple deployments. So at the end of the day, uh, we've got the experience at least for some time now, uh, and they don't. And, and that's going to according to this general, and I think he's right, uh, I think that'll cause them to hesitate. Predictions about an, an a imminent invasion of Taiwan are simply hysterical. Guys, thanks so very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Have a great weekend. Have a great week and look forward to having you back on again uh, next week. Thanks a lot. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.